This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. Your time is your greatest currency, make no mistake about that, and this fact of life does not go unnoticed by the creators on whom you spend your time. So thank you for spending your time listening and learning along with me on this podcast. Please note that the best growth tool for podcasts like this is word of mouth. If you believe in what's being said and strive for here, please consider pushing this out to all corners of your social media, as well as leaving a five-star review, multiple even if you'd like, um, on whatever podcast service you use. Links for this podcast are in the show notes. Though sincere, enough of the pitch. Let's get to it, shall we? We're heading back south again today to meet up with our Norman protagonists, antagonizing the hell out of the papal Byzantine, Lombard, German, and Saracen status quo throughout the Mediterranean region. What happens here quite literally paves the way to the culminating incident of the 11th century, an event we call the First Crusade. What happens on this bend in our medieval narrative deserves the attention we're going to give it, so I hope you're ready and excited. Today we start our new season, our sixth Inspired by the work of acclaimed British historian John Julius Norwich, we will call it The Other Norman Conquest. And as for this particular episode, I'd initially set out to, to do more or less, you know, outline what was happening down on the Italian peninsula in broad sweeping terms. But it quickly morphed into an all-out narrative of two major characters in this season's storyline. So... Here we go. Today's episode, episode 99, is entitled Still At It. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. since we last checked in with those pesky pony boys down south. So join me as we take a moment to remind ourselves of their story in this part of the world. We're building, I promise. We're always building. We followed William the Conqueror to England and Roger de Tosny to Spain already, sure, but we've also watched hundreds and hundreds of Normans leave the duchy to make a name and fortune in Greek and Lombard-controlled Italy. It began with some Norman pilgrims, sometime between 1000 and 1016, if you remember, on their way back from Jerusalem who were propositioned to help overthrow local Byzantine rule. After word of the wealth earned for the pilgrims' mercenary work followed them back home, other Normans slowly trickled down into southern Italy, looking for similar deals. They saw the lower boot of Italy as a boiling pot ready to burst, and they saw many employers looking for, well, what employers look for? Employees. Upon leaving France, Normans were loyal to no one but their future selves, so they signed on to the highest bidder, oftentimes bouncing back and forth between Greek money to Italian bosses to papal bosses to Lombard bosses and back again. On a Monday, they would be fighting for the Greeks, 
and by Wednesday they could easily be fighting against their friends and kinsmen they had just fought beside. There are even records of Normans fighting on both sides of the battle on purpose, because whoever won the battle would earn more. And if you earned more than enough money to pay the ransom for their fellow countrymen who were captured in battle, that was all more the bonus. The Normans were running a straight-up racket, man, and they were quite successful at it. In the early to mid-1030s, a certain Hauteville boy traveled south looking for fame and wealth. His name was William, and he was originally from the Catentin Peninsula in Normandy. He was third in line to his father's fortunes and land and titles, so he could clearly see the writing on the wall, explicitly saying that the odds were not in his favor for having any sort of influence and wealth should he stay in the duchy. Not due to the, the culture, the custom of primogeniture that existed in Normandy. He and his little brother Drogo arrived in southern Italy just in time to join the great Eastern Roman Empire general George Maniaki's campaign to try to rid the island of Sicily of Muslims forever. The Muslims, called Saracens, which is how we will refer to them on this season of the podcast, they will be called Saracens, had held the island for a couple centuries now, but Constantinople was eagerly trying to join together Italy and Sicily to reunite the former great Roman Empire. Unfortunately for Constantinople, this never actually materialized. However, young William and Drogo de Hauteville created quite the name for themselves during the Sicilian campaigns, for his exceptional heroics eclipsing even the future Harold Hardrada, who was fighting on the same battlefields closely alongside Maniakis in his famous and deadly Varangian Guard, William even earned the nickname Iron Arm when he cleaved the local emir of Syracuse nearly in half when the Saracens had the Greeks and the Normans on the run. Things were looking good for Normans after that until William, the new de facto leader of the southern Normans in the area, although there were other uh, pretty strong claimants to that as well, well, William took offense to some paltry rewards given to the Normans in the aftermath of the Sicilian campaigns and abruptly led his Normans back to Apulia to raise a ruckus there, forcing Maniakis to return quickly back to Apulia and abandon the Byzantine Sicilian efforts. Pretty big moment, actually. I think it gets overlooked uh, quite a bit for its impact on the future. Another de Hauteville came to southern Italy around this time, and his name was Humphrey de Hauteville. And he would fall cleanly in line behind his older brother Drogo and his even older brother William. William would establish a firm Norman presence in southern Italy for a couple more years before dying. Drogo would continue William Ironarm's work, even welcoming, well, begrudgingly at best, his little brother from his father's second wife, whom Drogo, let's be clear, did not like. And if he didn't like the second wife, he's certainly not going to like, like the his new brothers, for sure. This little brother's name was Robert de Hauteville, and it's a man who we will follow very closely on this season, so let's not forget it. Lars Brownworth, in his book, The Normans, From Raiders to Kings, writes, quote, 
Drogo didn't particularly like his father's second wife and detested her children, so he sent Robert off with a small band of followers to cut his teeth in a frontier fortress deep inside Byzantine Calabria. The castle overlooked a coastal plain which held the picturesque ruins of the ancient city of Sybaris, but if Robert expected anything approaching luxury, he was quickly disillusioned. The small, dank fortress was malaria-ridden and dark, languishing in a particularly sparse region of Italy. Calabria was much poorer than Apulia, end quote. So yeah, that passage gives us a good idea about Robert de Hauteville's reception in southern Italy. It wasn't exactly the fondest or the most welcoming. Brownworth says, quote, A massive conspiracy was hatched to assassinate every major Norman in Italy, and in 1051, it was carried out. Drogo was cut down as he entered his private chapel, and by nightfall, all of Apulia was in an uproar, end quote. Now, Drogo's passing would leave the next hope villain line to take the reins, that of Humphrey. Humphrey would proudly and effectively lead the southern Normans, as they came to be known, until 1057, when he ultimately died of malaria. Now, under Humphrey, though, three more brothers would join them in southern Italy. Yes, the, the Hopeville line never seemed to, to end with Normans to send down there. All highly trained and disciplined Normans, I should add. And these names were Geoffrey, who was older than Robert, and William, yes, another William de Hauteville, and Malger, who were both younger. William and Malger were both younger than the others. It's worth noting that a pivotal moment in Norman history occurred under Humphrey de Hauteville's rule over Apulia and Calabria. That was the Battle of Civitate, in which the formidable Pope Leo IX had to watch helplessly from the walls of the fortified Italian city while, he, while his soldiers stood no chance against the Normans. It said the citizens of Civitate kicked the Pope out on his rump and shut the doors behind him, leaving him at the mercy of the dreaded French knights outside. Humphrey de Hauteville led the party to greet the defeated and humiliated Pope, his little brother Robert de Hauteville by his side. The Pope was taken prisoner for nine months, but it was treated as an honored guest merely on house arrest, you could say. This was a turning point in Norman papal relations, and Humphrey's treatment of the Pope will not be forgotten in the coming decades. During Humphrey's rule, Robert de Hauteville wasn't exactly appreciated and welcomed with open arms with him either. Remember, Robert was the first son of Papa Tancred de Hauteville's second wife, so the loyalties between brothers were strained. To be clear, Humphrey wasn't exactly a good guy either, just generally speaking. Say what you want about Robert, and we will have a lot to say about Robert, believe me. But Humphrey de Hauteville, though accepted as ruler by his Norman and Lombard subordinates, as the great historian John Julius Norwich writes in his book, The Other Conquest, quote, he had been a hard, jealous, vengeful man with a streak of cruelty that had showed itself in the savage tortures inflicted on the murderers of his brother Drogo, end quote. He was even said to have thrown his little brother Robert into a dungeon due to a simple misunderstanding that caused a jealous rage. Quickly letting him out, 
Humphrey hatched a new plan to rid himself of this up-and-coming Norman leader, his brother, mind you. Humphrey sent Robert back to Calabria, which is very Greek in comparison to Apulia, and quite hostile to non-Eastern Roman rule. We have to wonder if Humphrey was simply trying to get Robert killed, but there's no evidence for that necessarily. We know their relationship was very strained, though, but Robert saw greatness in Calabria, quite to the dismay of Humphrey, who was forced to acknowledge Robert's military acumen and bravery. The tactics Robert used were very underhanded and destructive, though, and they earned him the nickname Giscard, translated to English as the clever, the fox, or even the cunning. But all of those had a very, very negative connotation, by the way. Giscard was not exactly a term of endearment given to him. But whatever it meant exactly, those who gave him the name certainly (laughs) did not mean it as a compliment. Thus, Robert de Hauteville transformed into the immortal legend Robert Giscard, which is how we we will refer to him here on the podcast from now on, Robert Giscard. And when Humphrey died in 1057, the absolute only choice that made any sense whatsoever to take the title of Duke of Apulia and Calabria was Robert Giscard. His elder brother Geoffrey simply did not achieve the same status as other Hopevilles, but Robert did. And to their credit, William de Hauteville, the younger one, not Ironarm, the younger one, had assumed the title of Count of the Principate, while Malger became Count of Capitanata. But Robert, Robert was the man. However, it wasn't a cut-and-dry succession, though. Nothing in Norman history, if we're... <laughs> If we're paying any attention whatsoever, nothing in Norman history is cut and dry. No. After Humphrey released Robert from prison, and before he sent him off to Calabria, he did reluctantly choose the best man to be the guardian and protector of his infant son, Abelard. So Humphrey de Hauteville had an infant son named Abelard, and he chose Robert de Hauteville, soon Robert Giscard, to be Abelard's protector. Well, I mean, come on. You and I have been at this for long enough to know how that's going to turn out. Robert Giscard immediately assumes control of all of Humphreys slash Abelard's titles, lands, estates, whatever, as if they were lawfully willed to him. And he becomes the ruler of Apulia and Calabria. There were some revolts by various Normans across Apulia, but in the end, Brownworth says, quote, he forced even the loyal nobles to re-swear allegiance to him, then returned to the toe of Italy to complete the conquest of Calabria, end quote. So basically, he's getting everybody, hey, I'm the guy, deal with it, it's time to double down and uh, show me your allegiance. And Norman control over southern Italy would remain under Robert's control for a very long time to come. And though they were certainly very much their own men, we can possibly equate Robert Giscard to William the Conqueror on many different levels. But, you know, you be the judge on that one. They they were both incredibly formidable and (laughs) undefeatable, to be quite honest, for much of their adult lives. And those two things are, uh, those are pretty safe facts. 
So it'd be interesting to see what you guys think about the Robert Guiscard and William the Conqueror and why we remember one more than the other, um, although the lasting impacts of one do edge out the other. I'll let you figure out who that is. But So what else happened in 1057? One more person would join them immediately after Humphrey's death in the springtime. After Humphrey joined his brothers William Ironarm and Drogo in the crypt at Santissima Trinita at Venosa. Chronicler Malaterra, yeah, that, that's his name, Malaterra, <laughs> translated to Badland. Uh, just go with it, I guess. Malaterra would write of this young man, quote, the youngest of the brothers, whom youth and filial devotion had heretofore kept at home, now followed his brothers to Apulia. And the Guiscard rejoiced greatly at his coming and received him with honor, which was his due. For he was a youth of great beauty, tall of stature, and of elegant proportion. He remained ever friendly and cheerful. He was gifted also with great strength of body and courage in battle. And by these qualities, he would soon win the favor of all. End quote. Now, Malaterra here was referring to Roger de Hauteville, barely 25 years old and the baby of the gigantic Hauteville brood. He would be the last of Tancred de Hauteville's sons to come south, though he would hardly be the last Norman to come south. There would be even more from that particular family, nephews specifically, who would make their ways down, but that's all for a future episode. Oria, Nardo, Lecce, Minervino, Otranto, Gallipoli. Now, some of you might recognize a few of those city names if you're into World War II history, which shows you just how mind-bogglingly old some of these places are. But these cities all fell to Giscard by 1057. So initially, things were, well, they were rocking for Giscard in southern Italy. I mean, it wasn't easy, but all things considered, Giscard was able to cap off the springtime with a successful campaign to quell his minor but longtime adversary of Gisolf of Salerno, managing to actually steal away the town of Casenza and several villages surrounding it. In just 11 years, Robert Giscard had become the single most powerful and influential landowner in southern Italy upon the death of Humphrey de Hauteville. There was one who competed with him, though not necessarily an active adversary, Richard of Aversa. Norwich tells us that Normans and Melfi and Aversa made efforts to separate themselves from those under the control of Guiscard, which I find interesting. By August, communication had spread to all towns and villages, and Guiscard had commanded all loyalties. By the end of that month, Robert had moved. Excuse me, Robert had moved toward Salerno once again with his brother William de Hauteville, again the younger one, not the dead one. They quite literally peeled away mile by mile, circling the city of Salerno until all that was left was Salerno. The young and impetuous Richard of Salerno knew he'd talked trash to the wrong guy. Meanwhile, Richard of Aversa was trying to hang with Guiscard by attacking his longtime enemy, Pandolf of Capua. Good news came to Richard when Pandolf died the summer of 1057, cutting the city of Capua off from any means of sustenance and trade. John Julius Norwich writes, quote, 
they defended themselves valiantly, end quote. But then Norwich quotes the chronicler Amatus here. Amatus writes, quote, The women carried the stones to the men and brought comfort to their husbands, and the fathers taught their daughters the arts of war. And so they fought side by side and comforted each other together. End quote. Soon Richard of Aversa, the Norman count, became Prince of Capua. Norwich drops the sobering fact that over 200 years of hereditary Lombard rule came crashing down in that moment. All due to Normans, right? I certainly don't mean to muddy the waters of history by going into so much depth, but the complexity is so rich, it only goes to show that Normans, well, they just be Normans, whether in the north of Europe or the south of Italy. Richard of Aversa, Robert Guiscard, William the Conqueror, they're all cut from the same Viking cloth. It's just the reach in which they succeeded in impacting. William, we know, did some catastrophically horrible things to achieve his ends, and I'm talking William the Conqueror. Now, Robert de Hauteville literally earned a nickname for his underhandedness and cruelty, that of Guiscard. But Richard of Aversa was up there too. For, for instance, when Capua was under wraps, Richard betrothed his own daughter to the son of Duke Atanulf of Goethe. But within a year, the boy had died. Norwich tells us, quote, The occasion should have been one for condolences from the intended father-in-law. Instead, the new prince of Capua addressed to Duke Atanulf a demand for the Morgengab, by which, according to Lombard law, the Morgengab, one quarter of the husband's fortune became the property of the wife after marriage. In this, Richard had not one shred of justification. As its name clearly implied, the Morgengab was payable only on the day following the nuptials as a mark of their successful and satisfactory consummation. Atzenolf naturally refused. This is what gave Richard all the pretext he needed. End quote. Now, Normans under Richard of Aversa within days were burning, pillaging, and raping their way across the tiny, unassuming, non-threatening territory of Gaeta. And Norwich here explains something that I may hold as a main point of this particular episode. He writes, quote, Here was a typical example of Norman methods at their worst, the trumping up of some legalistic excuse, however shaky, a half-hearted attempt to pin the blame on the intended victim, and then the attack itself, whenever possible, with a vastly superior force pursued without regard for decency or humanity. End quote. If you need to, re-listen to that quote. Go back a few seconds and re-listen. That's a big one. Um, and, and what comes to mind, how many times did William, you know, uh, make an accusation and then go after it, however shaky his legalistic reasoning was? So it was very, it was a very Norman thing to do. Think about all we've learned so far about Norman culture. Richard of Aversa just tried to pervert the Morgengab, a tradition which essentially stated that the virginity of the bride is worth one quarter of the groom's total possessions, and ended up using the refusal by the groom's father, grieving father, mind you, to pay up as a pretense to attack. 
Duke William used that similar tactic with the county of Maine, if you remember. He then used some made-up promise to invade, conquer, and even commit untold and barely understood atrocities and genocide against the Anglo-Saxons of England. And we have a few more prominent Normans yet to study. We haven't even gotten to the likes of Bohemond of Taranto and Roger of Sicily and his kin. Not trying to be overly critical here, I'm a firm believer in the idea that people are products of their times. But objectively speaking, the Normans had a shared tactic, let's be honest. And this tactic was damn successful. What's worse is that Richard of Aversa does the people of Gaeta one more. During the sieges and pillaging of the area, Richard of Aversa, well, he takes a moment to stop by and check out the already famous monastery at Monte Cassino. The thing is, Monte Cassino was up to the spring of 1058, led by a man by the name of Frederick of Lorraine, a veteran soldier. Yes, the abbot was a soldier, not terribly uncommon then. He was a veteran soldier of the Battle of Civitate when Humphrey de Hauteville took Pope Leo IX hostage and completely humiliated the papal forces. And he was also a part of the papal legate who dropped the schismatic bomb on the Eastern Orthodox Church in 1054. This guy was a firebrand and he hated the invasive Normans. Well, Pope Stephen IX, the man who installed him there and supported him wholeheartedly, had just died in March. This was when a man named Desiderius of Benevento became the abbot of Monte Cassino. Desiderius was once treated very well by Robert Guiscard and given the horses and guarded passage through Norman territories back to Rome a couple years prior. And Desiderius was one of the few churchmen who quickly realized that the Normans were going absolutely nowhere and the church had better get used to this fact. He would be, you know, an inside man for the Normans throughout the halls of the Vatican's for years to come. And as the new abbot of Monte Cassino, he welcomed the Norman Richard of Aversa with open arms, prompting Richard to make massive donations to the monastery, making it a formidable influence and presence in Norman Italy from that point forward. What it also did was undermine the anti-Norman sentiment in the area in and around Gaeta. This is incredibly complex, and I don't, again, mean to muddy the waters, but to see all the layers that... You really have to dig into to, to unearth what's going on at the time. It really does add, uh, it adds a complexity that I was certainly not expecting to, to have the records of um, during the Normans in southern Italy, their, their conquering of southern Italy. So switching gears, we find Robert Giscard welcoming his younger brother, again, the baby of the brood, as we've said, Roger de Hauteville to southern Italy. Norwich says, quote, to the population of South Italy, the progeny of old Tancred de Hauteville must have seemed interminable. Already no fewer than seven of his sons had made their mark in the peninsula, four having risen to supreme leadership and the remaining three firmly established in the first rank of the Norman baronage. Roger was the eighth. End quote. In the autumn of 1057, we see Roger, 
now 26 years old, in Calabria with his older brother, the already great Robert Guiscard. Quote, Roger proved an apt pupil, end quote, Norwich writes. Now quickly, Guiscard was called back to Apulia to put down another, as we know these happened all the time, put down another Lombard uprising, and Roger was clearly the best option to leave in charge of the Calabrian forces. But just as quickly as Guiscard left, Roger was called to Melfi to help Robert out. Melfi was actually reclaimed by Lombard leadership, and with the fall of Melfi, well, that might have very well resulted in cracks in the De Hopeville reign in Apulia. Norwich says, quote, Roger's arrival proved decisive and the revolt was quashed, end quote. By all accounts, Roger's arrival was very well received. I mean, Robert's little bro came out, unlike Robert's older brothers, uh, largely they shared a mother, which was a major obstacle in how they got along. Now, Robert and Roger were thick as thieves at first. They shared the same mom. But the moment Roger showed up at Melfi and all but saved the day, this was cause to trigger a very Hopeville emotion. Jealousy. Robert Guiscard, a man who needed no introduction when he arrived anywhere in southern Italy, instantly blew up in a rage when Roger questioned his gifts after Melfi was quelled. Giscard was surprisingly well-known and beloved by his subordinates for the generosity of his gifts. But the moment Roger called him into question, Giscard lost his stuffing. In the first couple months of 1058, we're told that Roger left his brother's service. And not like, okay, man, whatever, and walked away, Roger stormed out in a rage. That apple didn't fall too far from the trees, saying a lot of Tancred and the house he raised back in Normandy. Here's the thing, though. Where was Roger to go? Giscard ruled the land. Well, once again, Norman rule wasn't as simple as the books make it seem. Roger found refuge in his brother, William de Hauteville, Count of the Principate, who had received and now owned Salerno itself. In fact, Brother William offered him, according to Roger's biographer, Malaterra, half of his everything quote-unquote, accepting only his wife and children. That's a pretty good deal. Before he knew it, he was waking up to the smooth waves of the Tyrrhenian Sea and a castle at Scalea. And he would use this vantage point to lead raids and ambushes in the area around. And he was so successful that his brother, Robert Giscard, was told. Roger's treasury began to swell, and this forced Giscard to take him very seriously. Norwich writes the following, quote, But the young man was destined for greater things than a life of brigandage. And looking back at him down the perspectives of history, we can see that the decisive turning point of his life in Italy came in 1058, when Calabria was overtaken by a terrible famine, end quote. That's right. Roger de Hauteville used a famine to catapult him to greatness. Okay, it wasn't that sinister in the truth of it. He couldn't have possibly known that this horrible famine would have such a net positive for his career and his legend, but at the same time, it still happened that way. And this famine was absolutely, without question, caused by Normans. They had spent the better part of two decades, 20 years or so, torching Calabria, 
Its fields were ashes, its forests were stumps, and its orchards were washed away. And all that devastation came to a head in 1058. Norwich provides the exact description given by chronicler Malaterra here. Quote, Even those who had money found nothing to buy. Others were forced to sell their own children into slavery. Those who had no wine were reduced to drinking water, which led to widespread dysentery and often an affection of the spleen. Others, on the contrary, sought to maintain their strength by an excessive consumption of wine, but succeeded only in so increasing the natural heat of the body as to affect the heart, already weakened for want of bread, and thus to produce further internal fermentations. They sought to make bread with weed from the rivers, with bark from certain trees, with chestnuts or acorns, which were normally kept for pigs, these were first dried, then ground up and mixed with a little millet. Some fell on the raw roots, eating with a sprinkling of salt, but these obstructed the vitals, producing pallor of the face and the swelling of the stomach, so that pious mothers preferred to snatch such food away from the very mouths of their children rather than allow it to be eaten. End quote. That's pretty heavy. Um, this famine was absolutely no joke. We have no way to know the numbers of folks stricken by illness or even those who died from malnutrition or starvation. As we know, the records just don't do that for us. But Calabria suffered greatly during 1058 and into 1059 until finally, unsurprisingly, the Calabrians, mainly Italians and Greeks, first refused to pay their Norman overlords taxes, then they refused to show up to fight for their local barons. And from the expected Norman backlash, they slaughtered more than 60 Norman knights garrisoned at Nicastro. The fire of Calabrian rebellion spread across the land. Now, Robert Guiscard was spread so thin already and he just couldn't deal with Calabria at the moment. He had no other choice to stem the tide of rebellion. Giscard called his brother Roger back to his service. Norwich writes, quote, Messengers sped to Roger at Scalea, and this time he could not accuse the Giscard of any lack of generosity in the terms he offered. If Roger would now settle the Calabrian insurrection, half the affected territory, plus all that remained for future conquest between Squillis and Reggio would be his. He and Robert would enjoy equal rights and privileges in every city and town, end quote. Now that is a hell of a deal. Roger quells the starving and angry Calabrians, and he gets to be their overlord. And Norwich gets to wrap up this episode here with a line that I find haunting, to say the very least. Roger gets to work right away. He descends upon Calabria with, well... We have no clue whatsoever of what happened. None. We don't know how many knights were in Roger's service in the moment. We don't know where he traveled exactly, what towns and cities he hit up. We don't even know the specific tactics. We know nothing. We don't know the number of towns that were raised or the number of people slaughtered. Norwich writes, quote, Nor do the chroniclers tell us what action he took against the insurgents, but... They never mention the Calabrian insurrection again. End quote. 
damn. I mean, that's, that's telling. Now, this bend in our medieval narrative is going to get more complex. There are a lot of players on this field. On this episode, we picked up where we left off before with our southern Norman friends, namely the De Hopevilles, Humphrey, and Robert, and we were even introduced to the baby of the brood, Roger. Those who have seen my Patreon page have seen a screenshot of my story map for this season, and it's crazy. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy, the story map. Robert Giscard and Roger de Hopeville are certainly two massive players we'll follow over the next several episodes, but we have so many others to get to. And it's crazy that all these people's stories intertwined in ways you couldn't believe. I certainly was surprised, and I continue to be surprised. At first, it'll seem like we're just bouncing around, but I promise you, it's all leading to somewhere. Somewhere really, really important in our overall understanding of the 11th century. Until next time.